The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children... Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are all to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me. Three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Amy, for reading that passage for us this morning. We're in a part of the text on the Lord's Supper where we're focused really in on two people right now uh, besides Jesus. And they're two interesting characters uh, because of a way that they're similar to each other. We're talking about Judas and Simon Peter. question to think about. What is your least favorite version of yourself? It's a heavy question. It's one I've been thinking about this week. And one of the problems I have with that question is I have an answer. I have an answer to the question. And I'll tell you what it is. My least favorite version of myself is the duplicitous version. That that part of me that comes across one way but knows 
in my heart that I'm holding back or that part of me that, that wants to project that I'm a certain way or that my character is, has a certain kind of fortitude to it that I know deep inside it, it doesn't. And I could go on and I could go deeper. But I want you to think about that. What is the version of yourself that you like the least? Is there any hope for it? I've been wrestling with this sermon because this is as close to an altar call as I get. Um, I want to ask you a question. And the nature of the question is such that there will only be two people who will know the answer to it. And that would be you and the Lord. And the question is this. Are you like Judas? And what I mean by that is when it comes to faith, are you pretending? If you are, if you're a person where people would look at you and assume that you're a Christian, but you know that you're not, but you do things to, to look like you are, you, you need to know that this is not a game. Judas is a fascinating person because he had this proximity to Jesus. And yet we see that this proximity that he had to him was not enough to save him. If, if you are like that, there are only two people here who know it, you and the Lord. The last time when we started off this sermon series, we, we took some time to go around the table because we're going to be at this Last Supper for a while now. And we just took some time to, to meet the people who were seated there. And one of the things that we observed last week was there was this thing that they shared in common. And what they shared in common is they all heard Jesus say things that none of them understood. So they didn't understand until later. Like he would say things like, the son of man must be betrayed and handed over to die and on the third day he will rise. And they did not have any category for what to do with that. That did not make any sense to them. And so they didn't know what that meant. Another thing that they had heard, and John talks about this in John 6 and also in John 12, is that Jesus said that among them was a betrayer, that there was a traitor in their midst. But they never really knew what to do with that either. And Jesus never outed the conspirator. And the reason he didn't was because that conspirator had a job to do. But now here at the table where they're gathered in the upper room, Jesus says it very directly to the 12. He says, one of you will betray me. And now they understood, oh. And they were sad. And Matthew's gospel, when he talks about this, one of the things he tells us is that they responded by asking the question, is it me? that they each understood that they carried within themselves enough of a measure of duplicity that it might be.
John tells us here in this text that at this moment, Jesus is deeply troubled in spirit. It's fascinating because he's giving us an emotional plot point. He's saying he's troubled in spirit. He's upset. He's emotionally raw. And of course he is because he knows what's happening. The last three years of his life had been filled with this intense ministry and now he is in this room with his closest friends for this last dinner together and he's there with them and also in the room is his betrayer and Jesus knows that the cross is imminent and that he is about to do for them something they don't understand and what he's about to do is he's about to take upon himself the full measure of God's wrath toward their sin. And I bring this up to say, let's not think for a moment that Jesus is just emotionally skating through this supper as though this is some kind of trick that he's about to pull. Like somebody who's watching a movie for the 11th time and he knows how it's gonna end and so he's fine. No, his burden is heavy It's real, it's present, and it's escalating. Because John starts the Last Supper with Jesus being deeply troubled in spirit. And where does it end? It ends with him in the Garden of Gethsemane with his anxiety so high that he is sweating drops of blood. That's the emotional continuum that Jesus is on for this entire supper is there. I think it's good for us to try to imagine this aspect of the scene, the tension that would have been there. So so imagine this with me. Let me ask you the question. Have you ever been at a table where you sensed that one person at the table was harboring bitterness against another person at the table? Maybe this has happened recently. So that's what's happening here. You don't know the details, but you sense The tension is palpable, you can tell. There are two people at this table who are not cool with each other and you sense that something is wrong. Okay, you there? Let me add something. Now imagine that the bitter man is conspiring to have the one that he is bitter toward killed. Now let me add one more thing. Imagine that the one that he means to kill knows it. That's quite a table to be sitting at, isn't it? This is the context of this part of the Last Supper. Is that there's a betrayer and the Lord and the Lord knows who the betrayer is and what it is that he's going to do, and the betrayer knows what it is that he's going to do as well. John describes the moment. Let's not forget that when John tells the story, he's telling it as an eyewitness. He's remembering something he experienced. So he's not just telling a story that he heard about, but he's remembering something that he experienced, and it's in the details of the way he describes the moment. He says that he sat next to Jesus that night. He also tells us that Judas sat very close to Jesus as well. Close enough to be able to take a morsel of bread from Jesus' hand. 
So it might have been that John was sitting on one side of Jesus and Judas was sitting on the other. We don't know. But the proximity was close. It had to have been. And so when Jesus says there's a betrayer in the room, Simon Peter, who's sitting across the table, covertly motions to the disciple whom Jesus loved. We talked about him last week. That's a reference to John. To ask Jesus who the betrayer is. And so John says that he leans against Jesus. And what has to have happened here is a conversation that was a whisper. And the reason we know it was a whisper is because what was said between the two of them, nobody else heard. Including Judas, who was sitting close enough to Jesus to receive bread from his hand. And so Jesus gives this answer and he conceals Judas' identity from everyone except for Peter and John when he says to John, it's he to whom I give this bread when I have dipped it. And then Jesus dips the bread and he offers it to Judas and Judas takes it. And the rest of the text makes it clear that nobody else knew what was happening. They didn't pick up on the significance of that. Not even Judas knew it was a sign. But when he received the bread, John tells us, Satan entered him. And then Jesus said, what you are going to do, do quickly, which raises a very fascinating question. Is Jesus speaking in that moment to Judas or to Satan? Because they're in the same vessel. Imagine, though, what that would have been like for Judas. Imagine what he must have seen in Jesus' eyes in that moment. Imagine what Jesus would have seen in Judas' eyes. Of course, Jesus was greatly troubled in that moment. The reason he was born was unfolding right then and there. Dorothy Sayers, when she was writing a play about Jesus called The Man Born to Be King, she struggled to understand what drove Judas. And she asked this question, and I love the way that she words this question because it gets... It just hits the nail on the head from my own questions about him. She says this, what did the man imagine he was doing? He is an absolute riddle. She says he can't have been awful from the start or Christ never would have called him. He is a riddle, Judas. What did drive him? We know he was greedy. We know that he skimmed off the top. John tells us that in John 12. But we also know that to betray Jesus, the chief priests gave him 30 pieces of silver, which was four months' wages. And four months' wages hardly compensates for three years of being at Jesus' side as one of his disciples, as one of the ones who went out and proclaimed the coming kingdom of heaven. And so it makes you ask the question, why did Judas hold Jesus in such contempt what is it that Jesus did that made Judas have this simmering contempt for him? Why do you hold people in contempt? What are the reasons there? 
Though no one can really say conclusively all that drove Judas to do what he did, there are some things that we do know. And I want to just mention a couple of them. The first is that we know the man that he seemed to be. And by that, he seemed to be a devoted disciple who looked like all of the other disciples. And we know this because even here in the upper room, he had concealed his duplicity so well that when Jesus declared one of them would betray him, no one immediately pointed in Judas' direction and said, I'll bet it's him. And so he seemed to be a person who walked just as closely as Jesus, with Jesus as the other 11. The other thing that we know about him is we know that though he was destined by God for this role, he acted under the influence of Satan. And I confess to you that I don't know how to explain what that means except to take it at face value, that we have an enemy, that he's real, and he doesn't want any of us to have any hope. And so John labors to make us understand that it wasn't just that Judas was indifferent to Jesus, it's that he was acting in collusion with the devil. And you think about everything that he saw, every miracle, every parable, every act of mercy, every unassailable rebuke that Jesus would offer the religious establishment. And neither Jesus' words nor his actions penetrated Judas's heart at all. And so he is this riddle. He's part pragmatist and he's part pretender and he's part conspirator. And maybe even Judas couldn't explain his own reasons. But he became what Robert Rayburn described as the archetype of all traitors. Judas Iscariot, perhaps the most dishonored name in history, and still no one thought that he was a traitor. It is at this exact moment during the 830 service when the sound system went out. where I said without the benefit of a microphone, listen. For Jesus, as the head of this feast, to offer bread to Judas was an understood honor. It was a gesture of love and it was an occasion for Judas to repent. And it was an occasion for Judas to consider their bond. And that moment was the hinge on which Judas' entire life turned. It was an invitation. It was a moment of decision. And Judas's mind was already made up. And so he took the bread from Jesus' hand and he left. And I wonder if he just popped that bread into his mouth like he didn't have a care in the world and just strolled out of the room and slipped into the night. I wonder if he was still chewing as he left. I, I, I wonder 
if the others had any sense. John tells us they didn't. Everybody figured that since he kept the money, he was just off to settle a tab or give a customary Passover alms offering to the poor, but they were wrong. John writes about what happened in the moment in the way that only John does. He he was a poet, John. And he writes about this moment with a poetic flourish. He tells us what was really going on as Judas disappeared. He said, he went out and it was night. Light and dark are symbols that appear throughout John's gospel. He speaks of Jesus as the light of the world. He does it in John 1 and John 3 and John 8 and John 9 and John 11 and John 12. As Judas leaves, John is describing a man forsaking the light of the world and stepping irreversibly into darkness. And we know that when he does, Judas is not long for this world either. That his departure would lead not only to Jesus' death, but to his own. So what do we do with this part of the story of the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry? Well, one haunting and obvious application for us is that no one, no one, at that table, knew that Judas was a pretender. You can do this for years. Only Judas and Jesus knew this. And still we see that Jesus was gracious with him to the end. Even giving him a seat close to his in that supper, Jesus left the door open for Judas to repent, knowing what was in his heart. And in the end, Judas takes the path that he was destined to take. He goes out into the darkness of his own doom. And so I ask, is Christ offering you the bread of reconciliation today? I believe in a God who calls his people to himself and I believe that he is a God of means and I believe that he uses even the darkest examples for redemptive purposes because the darkness is not dark to him. And so I ask you this, is he speaking to you through the example of Judas? Are you pretending Judas was close to Jesus, but this proximity couldn't save him. If you are a pretender, there are only two who know it. And there is joy and there is grace to be found in him. But this isn't a game. It's eternity. And Judas reminds us, you can sit under solid teaching and you can spend time with other believers and you can even participate in ministry and still be a fraud. Being known as a Christian, being known as a Christian and loving Jesus can be two entirely different things. When we look at the story of betrayal, I wonder, 
we wonder, what did Jesus ever do to deserve this kind of venom from Judas? And we see that the story of the Passion Week really pivots on the fulcrum of betrayal. But hear me when I say this. We miss the point if we think that Jesus went to the cross simply because Judas betrayed him. Jesus went to the cross because we, as a whole, have betrayed him. That we have betrayed the relationship with God we were meant for and what we've done is we've exchanged it for what amounts to a pittance. Judas represents something that happened in a moment, but it's just a fraction of the betrayal that led Jesus to the cross. But here's what you have to know about Jesus going to the cross. He did not go as a martyr. He did not go as a helpless victim. He told his disciples, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And I alone have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus went to the cross with a steely resolve to finish what it is that he had come to do. And here, even with his heart broken over his friend's betrayal, because you can't have a betrayal really without a pre-existing bond of friendship. Jesus again puts his strength on display. How does he put his strength on display? As Judas slips out into the night, Jesus with the remaining 11, gives them this table. He gives them this table. He institutes the Lord's Supper. Understand that when Judas left, Jesus reached for the bread and he tore it apart with his hands and he gave it to his disciples, telling them and showing them what was about to happen to him. And then he said, Keep doing this and remember me when you do. He gave it to us. And there at that table sat another one of his disciples, duplicitous, Simon Peter. Simon Peter, who would go on that night to deny even knowing who Jesus was. But then he would be forgiven. And he would be reinstated. And he would go on to lead and build the church across Rome. See, the difference between Judas and Peter is that Judas knew he was a betrayer. And Peter was confident that he didn't have that in him. And Jesus knew both of them. And the gift that he gave to Peter was before Peter could fail in that way, Jesus called his shot. He said, Peter... You're saying right now, and you believe every word you're saying, but you're saying right now that you would die with me. But before morning comes, you will have denied knowing who I am. 
There's affection in being told that by Jesus. Jesus knew what was in his heart. The beauty of Jesus is when Judas disappeared into the darkness, Jesus did not. He did not disappear into the darkness because there was no sorrow and there was no loss and there was no betrayal that would turn him from the purpose for which he had come, which was to die in the place of sinners who are not only capable but guilty of incredible duplicity. Capable of betraying the relationship with God that we were created to know and enjoy. That Jesus stayed in that upper room and everything from this point forward in this sermon series on the upper room, the fact that he's there doing what it is that he's doing as Judas is out there arranging for his arrest and his death is another way of John telling us what he told us last week, and that is he loved his own to the end. As you see Judas go out into the dark, may you also see Jesus, the light of the world, stay there at that table. He's planted. He's unshakably dedicated to his mission to die in your place. You don't have to be a pretender. As you see Simon Peter do the very thing that he swore he would never do, deny Jesus, and be surprised by the depth and the capacity of his own duplicity, which he never thought would happen and did. And may you also see the way Jesus went after him and loved him and restored him and used him knowing full well what was in his friend's heart. You can't sin big enough to make Jesus stop loving you. Is Jesus offering you the bread of reconciliation? If you've been a pretender in secret, is the Lord calling you into a genuine faith? The beauty of a sermon like this is I, never, I don't really ever hear the stories. So I don't know what the Lord is doing in people's lives. I just don't. I don't know what was happening at the 8.30. I don't know what's happening now. I know that his word doesn't return void. And I know that he does immeasurably more than all that we ask or think. If you've been a denier, if you've been duplicitous, if you've been a coward, and identifying with Jesus publicly, see him setting this table for you a place where you belong and where he redeems you with his body and his blood. This is not a game, but it is the most beautiful story ever. This invitation into his grace. Hear it. We conclude this sermon with the confession of sin and assurance of pardon, which we usually do earlier in the service, but due to the nature of where we've gone uh, today, I, I wanted to save this for the end as a way of coming to the communion table. We're going to confess our sins to the Lord corporately, and then we will, as we always do, uh, take a moment of silent confession. And then the assurance of pardon will be the communion table today. 
There, there aren't many greater assurances of pardon than that, than the table Jesus tells his disciples to continue to come to as a way of remembering what it is that he's done to give us a seat with him. And so with that said, let me invite you to stand and let's read this confession of sin together from the Book of Common Prayer. We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. Let's take a moment to confess our sins quietly. You may be seated.